Good morning. Glad you guys are here with us this morning. We're going to be continuing our commission series. If you're joining us for the first time, the last few weeks, we've been looking at the last 40 days of Jesus' time here on earth, the time from his death and resurrection up through uh, his ascension into heaven. And so we've been looking at what were his final instructions, what were his last days on this earth like. And we're actually going to start where we ended last week, which was Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Quentin did a great job. Uh, preaching that message to us about, about the method for how we're going to go and make disciples. And so this morning, before we get into that, you can put your finger there, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And then if you also want to put your finger over in Luke chapter 24, then you can go ahead and, and be there because that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. But before we do that, let me ask you, how many of you guys are planning on watching the Super Bowl tonight? Come on. How many? All right, good. Some of you guys don't have your hands up, so you're either asleep or you're lying. Uh, How many of you guys plan on watching the Super Bowl commercials tonight? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All right, how many of you guys are planning on watching the halftime show? Yeah, not me, not a big Coldplay fan. I don't know how you go from like Sir Paul McCartney, The Who, The Rolling Stones to Coldplay. One of these things is not like the others, if you ask me. Uh, Anyway, so how many of you think by the end of the night, You will know who won the Super Bowl. Three of you. Great. Excellent. How many of you think if you wanted to know who won the Super Bowl, you could know who won the Super Bowl after tonight? Right? You can go online. You could just turn on ESPN. I'm sure it'll be on the news for the next 48 hours, and you'll know who won the Super Bowl. Uh, here's, Here's where I'm going with this. When we think about the gospel, when we think about the great commissions that Jesus gave us, How likely is it that Jesus Christ made the journey from heaven to earth, lived on the earth for 33 years, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, a substitutional atonement for our sins, on the third day raised from the dead? How likely is it that he would go through that journey and leave the earth without making it 100% clear what we needed to do in order to receive eternal life? That was his purpose. That was his mission. It's not very likely that he did that. Let me get a little bit more personal. There's a lot of confusion around the gospel, and I want to ask you a very personal question. If you today were on your way out of River Rock Bible Church, you're on your way to Walmart or HEB, and you cross over Shell Road and Williams, you get to that intersection, and you're pulling through, and you get T-boned. You get hit by another car. Paramedics from Firehouse Number 5 come down. And they look into your glassed over eyes and they say, this one's gone. They put the bag over your head. How confident are you that when you open your eyes that you will be standing in the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven? 95% sure? 100% sure? 25% sure? We have to admit that if the answer is anything other than 100%, That there's something wrong when people don't understand the security and the assurance that comes through the gospel message. That Jesus made it 100% clear how we can with confidence know that when we pass from this earth, that we will stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and be welcomed into heaven. There's something seriously wrong when people don't understand that. And sometimes, let's be honest, it's the church that messes it up. Sometimes it's our own self-deception and our, our own thoughts, our own psyche that messes that up. 
And sometimes it's the work of Satan who comes in and messes up the message of the Bible and gets people to believe something that isn't true. But the question is, what do you believe? Where do you stand? Where are you? How confident are you? And I think uh, uh, we see this a lot with a lot of people who, who you ask them, hey, uh, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? You know what I hear a lot? I hope so. I think my sins are forgiven. And what I want us to, to accomplish this morning is that before you leave here, that there would be no doubt in your mind That you would not say hope or think, but you would say, I know. I know because Jesus Christ has made it 100% clear. Uh, We started our series in commission looking at John chapter 20. And Jesus said, hey, you're going to go. I have come. The Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is the night of his resurrection. He's coming to the disciples. He says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then in Matthew 28... 18 through 20, we have another one of his commissions where he gives us the method and he tells them what they're going to do as they go. And if you will with me, look over there at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Let's look at this. Quentin did a great job last week with these verses um, talking to us about the method. It says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So within this, Jesus has given us what it is that we're supposed to do. He says, make disciples. That is the command that he has given us to do. And so when we think about what is it that we're supposed to do, what is our mission, what are we supposed to be out there doing, it is make disciples. And then the question becomes... Well, how do we do that? And he's told us. We have a little graphic up here that's going to help us understand this a little bit. This is the discipleship process. And you'll see this arrow, this block, has all these feet on it. And that's where we start because when Jesus says go, the word that he uses there, the way that he uses it, sort of means as you're going. As you're going through life, I want you to go and make disciples. As you go to work, make disciples. As you go to the t-ball field, make disciples. As you go to your kid's school and meet parents and teachers, make disciples. And so how do we do that? Where do we start? It starts by understanding and committing your life to the gospel. So the beginning of a discipleship process is when someone understands what Jesus did and they receive that and they put their trust in that and they commit their lives to it, right? So we understand and we commit that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And the second step is baptism. Baptism. Baptism is a public proclamation that we are identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. And so we, we have the image of going under the water, just like Jesus Christ died for our sins. We go under the water in the same way, saying, I am dying to my sin. I'm dying to my old way of life. And we come up out of the water to walk in new life, just the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so very publicly, we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ, but it's also a very personal moment for us. When we say, when we can look back and say, yes, I have done this. I have identified with Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've not been baptized, I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to do so because that is one of the commands that Jesus gives us. 
that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we would be baptized. The next thing is that we would then learn and obey. He says, teaching them to obey or to observe everything I have commanded. So they have to learn and obey. This is a process. Nobody wakes up one day, even after being baptized, you don't wake up and say, you know what? I finally got it. I can obey the whole thing. I can do it. I'm good, ready to go, right? It's a process. It's a lifelong journey that we go through as we continue to learn and hopefully day by day as we follow Jesus Christ, as we spend time in his word, we get better and better. We, we begin to resemble him even more and more. But it all starts back here with understanding and committing to the gospel. And that's going to take us to Luke chapter 24. Um, if you would, open your phones to Luke chapter 24. Uh, yeah, I know. Nobody's got a Bible anymore. Everybody's got it on their phone. So open your phones to Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 44. This is uh, towards the end of Jesus' 40 days here on earth after he's raised from the dead. So raises from the dead, walks the earth for 40 days. This is, I believe, probably really close to the very end. Um, Luke kind of compresses a lot of what happens in Jesus' last days into about half a chapter. And so I think this comes really close to the very end, and this is what Jesus says. Then he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying, hey, do you guys remember those three years that we traveled around together, that we did life together? You saw me teaching, you saw me do miracles, and we had those times where we got away together and we just kind of sat, the 13 of us, and we talked. He says, do you remember all that? Do you remember how I was constantly pointing you to the Scripture to show you what Scripture said about the Messiah? And I was pointing out that I was fulfilling those Scriptures. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 15, where Adam and Eve have sinned, and God says, out of, your, out of the seed of the woman, I will send a Savior. And he makes that promise of a Savior, and he says, hey, uh, I'm going to fix this sin problem by sending one, but here's the deal. He's going to be bruised in the process. Right? It says the serpent will strike at his heel, and his heel will be bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. That's what Jesus did. He was bruised in the process, hanging on the cross. You go fast forward to Genesis 11. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, out of your seed, all nations will be blessed. He promises that he's going to bless all the earth through Abraham. And so God sends the Savior through Abraham's people, the Jews, and that's Jesus. You, you keep going through the prophets. You get to, to Moses, and Moses is writing to the people, and he's talking to the people, and he says, look, after me, there's going to come one that's greater than me. There's going to come one. There's going to be a Messiah that's going to teach you what you need to know. All the while, he's pointing to Jesus. Fast forward to Isaiah. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, he prophesies about the coming of the Messiah. He prophesies about the suffering of the Messiah, that he would take our sins upon himself. And he prophesies all these things about the coming Messiah, and Jesus points his disciples to that. Daniel, uh, in, in captivity in Babylon, 400 490 years, almost 500 years before the birth of Christ, before the time of Christ, he predicts to the very week the crucifixion of the Messiah. Gets it down to the week, 490 years. That's pretty good. Our weatherman can't even get the weather for the next 48 hours right. Right? 490 years. And then you fast forward to David in the Psalms. 
And in Psalm 22, David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for some of you that sounds familiar because those are the very words that Christ spoke on the cross. David predicts that the Messiah, the Son of God, would suffer and die. And Jesus is there with his disciples and he's pointing them back to all of this. And he's saying, remember all the things that I taught you. It's clear. It's clear. This wasn't some plan B. Jesus coming, suffering, dying on the cross, and rising on the third day wasn't a plan B. This was God's plan all along. From the very beginning, God's plan was to send his son to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus goes on in verse 46. He says, he also told them, uh, verse 45 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Now this phrase, open their minds, it's not some mystical thing that's going on there. He's just taking the scripture and saying, do you see it now? Do you see it now? Do you see it now? And they're saying, yes, we get it now. We, we understand, right? So nothing spiritual, mystical taking place here. He's just showing them the truth and they're understanding it. Verse 46, he said to them also, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and die and on, from the de- uh, on the rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus, right here, isn't it just like Jesus to take something as big as the gospel and boil it down to one sentence? He boils it down. He makes it so simple. Yet in this, he says, hey, here's what you got. Here's the important things you got to see. Make note of this, right? The gospel It's about Jesus. He explains who he is, who the Messiah is, that he's the Son of God that would die for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins. He he says that you have to understand uh, how you're supposed to respond, that we would repent and be forgiven. And then he says that you, you also have to understand who God is, that God is the one who sent me, that I am God sent by God. And then he explains the results of our repentance, which is the forgiveness of our sins. I think it's interesting that so many of us get confused about the gospel, and I think there's a very good reason for that. I think there's a very good reason for that, and the Bible makes it absolutely clear that there is a strong presence of evil in this world that wants to do nothing but destroy you and me. Peter says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy you and me. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. And he wants to destroy everything that represents, reflects, is in the image of God. And what better way to destroy someone than to make them doubt, to make them insecure about their relationship with God, to plant that seed of doubt so that they're saying, I hope I get to heaven or I think I might be going to heaven rather than I know I'm going to heaven. So we have this evil presence, but I think there's something else that as we look at what Jesus says about the gospel, I think there's one word that really trips a lot of us up and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And that word is repentance. Repentance. It has a very specific meaning in the original language, metanoia. It has a very specific meaning. Uh, To really understand it, I think it's better if we start by me explaining what it doesn't mean. All right, so here's what it doesn't mean. Now, I don't care what you heard at your last church, what your, your mom and dad taught you, what some priest taught you, what your grandparents taught you, what you think you know. There's a very specific meaning, and, and here's what it doesn't mean. 
repentance, biblically, metanoia, it does not mean remorse. It does not mean remorse. It doesn't mean uh, how sorry you are for your sin. Now, let's be honest. Some of us have really good reason to be remorseful about our sin. Some of us are like expert sinners. We have good reason to come down front, cling to the altar, and cry. But that's not what repentance means. If repentance means remorse, then what happens is our salvation comes down to the quality of our remorse. Whether or not we were sorry enough. And we put the focus of our salvation on ourselves rather than the finished work of Christ on the cross. So repentance doesn't mean remorse. Repentance also doesn't mean doing good works. It doesn't mean doing good things. And we see this very clearly with John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, he's out in the wilderness, he's baptizing, he says, repent, then bring forth the fruit of repentance. So he's saying that there's something that takes place before the good works. He's making it very clear that there's a separation between the repentance and the good works, right? And again, if our salvation is dependent on our good works, then one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to become puffed up and proud, we're going to be prideful because look how good I am. I was good enough to save myself. And again, we we remove the focus of Christ on the cross and we put our salvation on ourselves. The other option is insecurity. Because as we go through life, we're going to have a bad day. We're going to mess up. And we're going to be left thinking, well, I did really well yesterday and the day before that, but today I didn't do very well. Maybe I didn't have salvation in the first place. So repentance can't mean good works. Repentance, biblically, metanoia, here's what it means. If you want to write this down, metanoia, it means to change your mind. It's a changing of your mind from believing what, something that wasn't true to now believing something that is true. Okay, we have to change our minds from believing something that isn't true to believing something that is true. In fact, throughout Scripture, metanoia, the word for repentance and the word for faith, pistis, they're used almost interchangeably from time to time. One describes the process of coming to a right understanding. Uh, that's metanoia, changing your mind. And pistis describes being in the state of embracing the truth, faith. Okay? Uh, let me see if I can illustrate this. About a year ago, Amanda and I moved from one side of Georgetown to the other. And everybody knows in Georgetown we have two HEBs. You have the ghetto HEB and the Gucci HEB, right? So we, living on the other side of town, used to shop at the ghetto HEB. It's a little bit older. It's not as big, um, not as clean and nice on the inside, not as fresh. But, hey, that was our HEB, and we loved it there. In fact, I still go there just so I can see our cashier, Vicky. I still go by to see her every once in a while. She remembers me. She remembers the kids. We love it there. But it's older. It's not as nice. Well, here's the thing. At that H-E-B, bread is on aisle one. And I knew exactly where the bread was. So Amanda would call me and say, hey, can you stop and pick up some bread? Kids need to have a sandwich for lunch. Sure, I can. I go in. I go right to aisle one. I grab the bread and I go out. Now that we've moved to the other side of town, I do not go to H-E-B because it frustrates me because there's a lot of people there. And I don't like a lot of people there. And a lot of the people there walk very slowly down the aisles. <laughs> down the middle. You'd be laughing because you've been there, 
right? Or they stop and they talk to each other and they block the entire aisle so you can't get through, right? It looks like a, like a Buick and Cadillac dealership over there sometimes. Uh, so I don't go there very often. And I remember she, she said one day, hey, I need you to go get bread. And she says, the bread is on aisle eight. Well, I don't believe the bread's on aisle eight because at the other H-E-B, it's on aisle one. So I walk into H-E-B and I'm looking for the bread and I go to aisle one and lo and behold, I'm standing in the middle of potato chips. The bread is not on aisle one. At that moment, I changed my mind from believing what I once believed and I embraced the truth that the bread was on aisle eight and I go to aisle eight and guess what I find? The bread. The bread is on aisle eight. I had to change my mind. I had to move from believing one thing that was untrue to move to believing what is true and embracing it. That's exactly what the word repentance means, that we move from believing something that's not true, that's not accurate, to embracing the truth. And when we talk about the gospel, there's some very specific things that we have to understand. We have to change our mind about some of these things. And and again, I, I want us to start by looking at God. What does the Bible say about God? Some of us have a wrong perception of, of who God is. We think that maybe he's this big meanie up in the sky waiting for us to mess up and he's going to throw lightning bolts at us. Or uh, anybody remember Bruce Almighty where he's screaming, he's like, smite me, almighty smiter, right? That's our view of who God is. But according to the Bible, God is holy and loving. According to Scripture, throughout Scripture, what we see is that God is holy and loving. Here's what holy means. It means that God is perfect in every single one of his attributes. There is no evil in him. There is no sin in him. He is perfect. He is holy. Right? And as the holy God, he cannot allow sinful people to inhabit his kingdom. So when we talk about heaven, what we have to realize is that because we are a sinful people, which we are, and we'll get to that in a second, we are a sinful people, every single one of us has sinned, we cannot be in heaven. But God is also loving. God is loving, and so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could enter into a relationship with him, that we could spend eternity with him. First John says this, God is love. God is love. That's one of his qualities. That's one of his attributes. He is love. God is holy and God is loving. The second thing that we have to understand is evil. Uh, Excuse me, sin. That sin is evil and destructive. Sin is evil and destructive. Now, there's a lot of people out there who their idea of sin is that there was some pastor that just didn't like having fun. And so he sat down and he wrote up a list of rules so that nobody else would have fun either. And he passed those out and started saying, hey, these things are sin. Don't do these things, right? There's other people who think that, that sin is just society's way of getting everybody to behave, right? So we're all trying to get a certain behavior out of someone. So if we come up with these list of things and we put a label on them that's bad, then people will stop doing these and everybody will behave right. Other people think that sin is nobody's business but my own. As long as I'm not hurting anybody else. Who are you to tell me that I can't do this? What we have to understand is that sin is evil and destructive. When we sin, we are breaking God's law. And we know that God is perfect. God is holy. His law is perfect. His law is good. And so when we break God's law that is good, 
then we are doing evil. And it's destructive. It destroys us. There's a great book by Cornelius Plantinga uh, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he talks about sin as a parasite. And this is what he says. He says, The reason that sin is a parasite, an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance, nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really, really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. Not an organism, but a leech on organisms. In a metaphysical perspective, evil offers no true alternative to good as if the two were equal and opposite qualities. So what he's saying there is that what you learned from Star Wars, that good and evil are just opposite sides of the same coin, is not true, right? That's a Zen Buddhist idea. What we really see is that there is good, there is good which God created, and what sin does is it comes and it steals from the good and it warps it and changes it into something destructive, right? So sin steals from the good. C.S. Lewis says this, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. Good is original, independent, and constructive. Evil is derivative, dependent, and destructive. To be successful, evil needs what it hijacks from goodness. There's nothing good, there's nothing about evil. Evil takes from goodness and hijacks it. Great example of this. A lot of times we see things in people and we think, wow, that's really good. You know, sometimes we see something that's evil and at first we think, you know what, that's actually pretty good. It's doing some good. But when it's followed through to its conclusion, we see that it's not so good. Greed is a great example of that. Greed can make someone prosperous. It can make them industrious. It can make them a hard worker. But when you follow greed to its conclusion, it takes us to a very destructive and evil place. It starts out looking good. So, so sin latches on to the good of being productive, being industrious, latches on to that and steals from that and turns it into greed. Another thing that he says here is this. He says, sin is fruitful just because like a virus, it attaches the life force and dynamics of its host. Sowing and reaping, human longing, children's natural trust of their parents, such things belong among the springs and roots of good creation. Sin does not remove these things, it attaches to them and converts them into new uses. A faithful father, for instance, accepts his small daughter's trust and love, strengthens them, and tries to extend them toward God and out toward the world. A sexually abusive father also accepts his daughter's trust and love, but he uses them to bind his daughter to his lust. Sooner or later, he converts trust to fear and love to resentment. He strengthens these emotions, which with each episode of abuse, and whether he wants to or not, he may extend them toward God and out toward the world. The the parasitic nature of sin accounts for the fruitfulness of sin. The love of a father can be used to honor God, to point someone to God, or it can be abused in a sinful way. It's a parasite. It steals. Sin is evil and destructive, and we must understand that. Romans 5.12 says this. Romans 5.12 says, 
just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men. So because of our sin, because every single one of us have sinned, death has now entered the world, separation from God. And then he says this, um, because all have sinned, we have all sinned, we are all deserving of that death. Sin is destructive and evil. It brings nothing but death. That brings us to our next thing that we need to change our mind about, which is Jesus. What we have to understand from Scripture is that Jesus is the Messiah who paid sin's penalty. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He took the punishment for all of our sin. He took the punishment for the sin that you did yesterday. He took the punishment for the sin that you're going to do today. And he took the punishment for the sin that you're going to do tomorrow. He's paid for all of it. It is finished. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus Christ never sinned, yet God takes all of our sin and places it on Him. And when He dies on the cross... He pays the penalty for our sin. And as proof that God has accepted that sin on the third day, God raises him from the dead. Raises him from the dead to say, I've accepted that penalty. It's paid. It's paid for you. The last thing we have to change our mind about is ourself. Ourself. There's a a, a lot out there in the world that says, you know what, people are basically good. They basically do good things, but every once in a while they mess up. Right? We've probably heard that. Child psychologists try to teach you that. If you've ever had kids, you know that that's not true because you never have to teach them to sin. They just do it all on their own and you spend the rest of your life teaching them not to do those things. So what we have to understand is that we are all guilty in need of a Savior. We are all guilty in need of, sa- of a Savior. We're not basically good. Romans 3.10 tells us this. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. It's easy to look around and think, You know what? I'm better than Stephen. I'm better than Stephen. But Stephen is, is not the standard. John, Bill, Susie, Sally, they're not the standard. God is the standard. And when we compare ourselves to God, who is perfect in every single way, we don't match up. We are not righteous. Again, it comes down to, do we understand what it truly means to repent? That it's not about our good works or how good we think we are. Because as we saw, every single one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior. That sin has entered our lives. And that God is loving enough to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins. So the question remains, have you repented? Have you turned from believing what is not true to changing your mind and embracing what the Bible says is true? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross paying the penalty for your sins and on the third day was rose rose again. That simply by trusting in that, that your sins are forgiven. If your answer to that is yes, then you can be 100% certain that you are forgiven and that if anything happens to you, that you will spend eternity in heaven. I love what, what uh, John writes in 1 John 5.13. He says, These things were written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
that you may know that you have eternal life. Imagine on your way home today, you were to stop at an orphanage. You go in and you find the cutest kid you can find and say, come on, you're coming home with me. And they look up at you and say, oh, are you adopting me? And you say, we'll see. What kind of life is that? What kind of life is that? We'll see. No. The Bible uses the, the language of adoption that God has adopted us into his family. We are family, and nothing can change that. God doesn't want us to live in insecurity. God wants us to be confident in our salvation. So the question remains, have you repented? Are you 100% sure? If the answer is no, then what is it that you need to change your mind about? If your answer is yes, then I'd ask you this. Think about the people that live, work, and play around you. Do you know what their answer would be? Are they 100% sure? What I'd like for us to do now is we take two. If your answer to that question is, I don't know, I'm not 100% sure, man, I I want you to, to come up here and talk to me, grab me before you leave, or just write down whatever questions you have. I want you to settle the matter today. If your answer is yes, then I'd ask that you'd spend the next few minutes writing down names of people that you are not sure whether or not they are sure, whether or not they have trusted in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and then write down underneath there how you're going to go about sharing that with them this week. Let's take two.